Hi, this is Hugh Holiday. Welcome to this mini-series of the Focus Mind podcast. This mini-series covers this year, 2023's autumn marathon season. I decided that I wanted to dedicate a few episodes to masters in their field to help all of those listeners who may be training and competing in races this autumn. And if you're listening to this after the autumn marathon season, the tips and advice will be just as relevant, but just at this time, these are timely as we've got Berlin happening this month in September. And after there, we have Amsterdam, another big marathon that a lot of people in Europe compete in. And then we'll be going into some of the later races in Valencia in December. So I wanted to be able to bring some real expertise to our recordings. And so in this first episode, we have Matt Fitzgerald. If you've competed in any marathon or triathlon and are interested in the slightest into how to master your mind, balance your nutrition, get good coaching advice, Matt is one of the foremost authorities on those matters in the world. And I was lucky enough to be able to go to where his new retreat is based in Flagstaff, Arizona. I didn't actually get to see the retreat. I was just meeting up with uh, his co-author of one of his books, Run Like a Pro. Ben Rosario, who's a coach for the NAZ Hocker Elite, and this is the counterpart interview two years after the event, uh, where Matt is sharing some of his experience of that time, where he trained with the elite group for 12 weeks, and at 46 years old, got a PB in the Chicago Marathon. We talk in this episode more about his book on pace, which I will leave to him to explain in more detail. In the next episode, I will be talking with a high-end runner who finished in the top 20 of a marathon major and sharing their experience and tips which apply to all. I'll also be discussing what happens when you get injured when you're dedicating so much time in your training and an athlete that I've worked with in detail about what they're doing in order to help themselves overcome that and also put themselves in a really good place for their next attempt in the new year. And I might have one or two other episodes up my sleeve, but you'll have to keep listening in to find out what the topics and guests are. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this show with Matt Fitzgerald. Hi, this is Stu Holiday. Welcome to the Focus Mind podcast. With me today is acclaimed running and endurance writer, Matt Fitzgerald, also a run coach and endurance athlete himself. He's got up early-ish in the morning in California to <laughs> hit a Zoom with me to uh, record. So Matt, do you just want to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you. And if you are a runner of any length of time, the odds are you've probably got a Matt Fitzgerald book somewhere on uh, your bookshelf uh, from How Bad Do You Want It, uh, The Comeback Quotient. And what I like about having him on today, other than being able to share time with him, something I've wanted to do for a long time, but also um, share information that's going to help hopefully all of our listeners who, if they participate in the sport, is to be able to add to our earlier episode in um, March this year, we had with Ben Rosario, co-author with Matt of the book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow. And he has a new book out at the moment, which is called On Pacing. And I was saying to him earlier in this conversation before we hit record that I am a runner who I think at track I can be relied on if people want to use me as a metronome. But sometimes in races, 
I can be really consistent. Sometimes I can be up and down, probably like most runners, I'd assume. And it was something that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. But Matt's written a great book with practical advice for all runners of all levels, however experienced or not you are, that he thinks that this is a key element that if you get right, the likelihood is your running performance should improve. Is that about right, would you say, Matt? Is that kind of the motivation behind why you chose to write this book? Yeah, I guess uh, two two motivations. One is uh, I think it's a sneakily fascinating subject. It's one of those things, pacing is like every runner knows what it is, but it's so familiar that it's taken for granted. And if you delve into the science and really, and really <laughs> obsess about the art of it, as, as I do as both a coach and an athlete, it's 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 just there's a lot to explore there so that's one reason i think it it's just interesting and then two is um you know i started running in 1983 and so i've been around the sport for a long time and i have noticed that you know the average runner today is not as good at pacing i don't think as they were in, in the mid 1980s and there are reasons for that so uh, you know as a coach I, I just feel that um there's a need there it's right there in front of you it's like nutrition it can help you improve and, and and find more fulfillment in your sport to s- start taking it seriously. So, you know, there's a, a, a practical uh, need that I'm addressing with the book as well. Matt uh, said previously, what is pacing itself? And um, it's the art of finding your limit. And I, I love this. And I'm reminded of a, a good friend of mine who did his first marathon eight years ago, six or eight years ago. And he was quite scientific in his thinking and approach. And um, his idol was a motor racing driver who would always be very in control and eke out every second and efficiency in their motor racing. And this runner wanted to be able to go for a three hour time, but be able to kind of have got to the finish line and effectively collapse into a heap, having known that he's given everything. (laughs) And lo and behold, come race day, he had told quite a few of our friends that this is what his goal was. And he's very, very driven, single-minded. <laughs> and uh, he did it. And he managed to get round in, I think it was 257, 57. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that's about the art of pacing at its best, I would, I would suggest. Does that sound about the kind of philosophy that you would take as well, Matt? Yes. Yeah, it's, you know... Um when I'm trying to get athletes to appreciate, you know, what pacing is and why it's important, I, I compare it as a skill to other sports and, you know, say something like golf. If you watch professional golf at the highest level on television and you, and you see just the incredible precision with which the top players are able to hit, hit and putt the ball. If their caddy says it's 185 yards to the hole, chances are they'll hit it between 180 and 190 and it's not luck. So you can be that good at other sports skills. And because they're so visually impressive, everyone gets it. They they don't think, Oh, if I just do a bunch of calculations or consult my Garmin, I could hit a ball that well. It's like, no, (laughs) it's, it's an art that is developed through a, a lot of practice and, and pacing. It doesn't have, from the, ca- the camera's perspective, good pacing looks the same as bad pacing. It just looks like a runner running. <laughs> so it's hard to appreciate just how good you can get at it. But it sounds like, you know, your friend, you know, became the equivalent of one of those golfers who's able to hit the ball exactly where he or she wants to hit it. So, yes, it's not luck. Um, it's a skill. And you can really get scary good at it, especially at the longer distances. Yeah. So for context as well, I also used to work for a, um, one of the GB swimming squads, Para. We would talk to coaches quite often. And I think swimming, because it's got such parameters as 25 or 50 meters and things like stroke count, it, pacing in that sport is really, really somewhat easy to kind of talk about in a way that with distance running, because you've got different races. So you might have one runner doing different distances through a season, which may be your 50 meter splash and dash guy or girl, you know, they, <laughs> they know exactly where it comes. And also because water's water in a pool <laughs> doesn't really change that much. Some, some pools are seem to be faster than others. 
Whereas if you run the Boston Marathon compared to, say, Berlin, how you pace those two races, despite them being the same distance, is a different mm-hmm. beast entirely. And so whether or not you get your pacing right internally on track, you also got to kind of be able to apply it in different contexts, I guess, which might be harder for a runner, would you say? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a more dynamic sport and which is, you know, it's part of the fun of it. You know, the way I encourage runners to look at it is, you know, you don't have to be perfect at pacing, but if you, you know, cause I think a lot of runners think, well, I, you know, I stink at it. Well, guess what? Most people stink at it or, or feel they do. So don't worry about, you know, perfecting it or being the best in the world, but it can actually be, if you recognize that everyone stinks at it, it can be a competitive advantage for you. If you just take it seriously and, and get better at it. I think that's just a, a healthier way to, to approach the project of, of developing the skill. Yeah. And I think that you, you, you mentioned about the, over the past, say past 20 or so years, maybe a little longer, the pacing of runners across the board, maybe you called it in, in average has, has, has decreased, decreased in quality, decreased in ability. And that's coincided with um, the way in which we can measure everything with devices, GPS, your garments. And the thing that I really took from reading the book, and it's a really good reminder, I think, whether you're a coach, a sports site, the athlete themselves, is it should be an aid to helping you pace. It should be something which is not something you rely on, but something in which you end up eventually getting to a point where you can run on feel. And if, if, if coach says to you, I want you to do a six-minute mile or an eight-minute mile, that without the device, you can just drop into that pace and effectively get to the mile or kilometer point if you're working Ks and be within a tolerance that's quite quite near. Is, is that kind of like your thinking as well with the coaching you do? Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, th- there's a tendency in all of us to think in black and white terms versus <laughs> shades of gray. And, and so I had a concern in writing this book that people would their takeaway would be, oh, Matt thinks devices are bad. <laughs> and that is not my argument. It's it's that they are a tool that can become a crutch, like, like a lot of tools. And it was too late for the book, but I wrote a blog post about this after the book was published. The, I think the, the, the project is, I mentioned before, I, I started running in 1983. Well, you know, these, you know, GPS watches did not exist back then. And I remember wishing that they did. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, eventually there's going to be something, you know, because I go back to the days when my dad would get in his car and and drive and, and measure routes with an odometer. And then you would just remember, okay, there's a tree at the, you know, 5K mark or, <laughs> or, or whatever. It's like, and so when these things came around, I was pretty much the first in line to buy some of the, the, the early ones. So mm-hmm. th- they're useful. But quite honestly, if you look at people, if you look at the runners who are true masters of the skill of pacing, they're, they're using these devices, but they don't need them. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, if your starting point is it, you really feel like you need it. I'm not going to tell you to stop using your the device. I'm, I'm, t- I'm going to tell you your goal is to work with the device toward no longer needing it. So it sounds like a contradiction. Well, if you don't need it, why use it? No, it's actually most useful if you don't need it. So like that's the sort of project. So you could, if you're if you're dependent now, you're trying to sort of over overcome the dependency without actually getting rid of the device. Yeah, and I mean I I, I love the philosophy. Um, having worked with runners now for ten plus years, knowing various key races, I can. I can tell you points in the Berlin Marathon, in the London Marathon, where if you're relying on your Garmin or other brands are available of a GPS device, that if you're relying purely on the feedback from it, because of interference, tall buildings, location, you're going to come a cropper. And you, you might be going for a time and because based on pace. And if you train what Matt's talking about here more on feel and knowing what uh, eight, seven, six, five minute mile feels like, you can trust yourself more. And of course we know that when we trust ourselves as athletes, 
and we also trained well enough, both mentally and physically, you're more likely to achieve your time anyway. So um, it, it comes with a, I, I think for that reason alone, um, the book's worth nudging every runner worth their salt um, for, for that reason. And the, the one of the things that I was looking at when uh, I was going through it, of course, being a psychologist, I'm immediately going towards the chapter that was named The Mental Side of Pacing, The Mind of a Pacing Master, Chapter 5. And in there, Matt's talking about his time training with uh, Nazalite. So for those of you who haven't heard my interview that I did with Ben Rosario, the head coach of that training squad, Matt was Matt would call himself, would it be fair, a good, good sub-elite runner? Um, uh, a solid amateur. <laughs> a solid amateur. Okay, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to be both complimentary but also yes. dial down that you know not right on. on a pedestal without offending. Good, good for my age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a good G, GFA would say, and um, yeah, and his book uh, Run Like a Pro Even If You Slow is something that I've shared with a lot of my runners across all different abilities, uh, particularly those um, runners maybe of the uh, who are who are maybe starting out and aren't as quick who say the things like oh um well i can't work with you because i'm not fast enough and it's like well surely you want to work with me or a coach so that you can get faster it's not like right <laughs> here is a book which just is demonstrating that and in that chapter where you're talking about the mind of a, of a pacing master you you say that your experience will with working with ben bruce is that right ben, ben bruce yeah yeah was was the best experience of being able to run alongside someone who you felt had the perfect kind of ability to pace and that you learned from so do you want to talk about in particular and maybe with reference to some of the concepts and principles in the book why you why you felt that Ben's the exemplar for you yes um you know so I mean this definitely wasn't just uh, you know my perception so ben bruce was he was a member of the team at the time uh he was sort of you know late in a very successful professional running career he's the husband of the better known stephanie bruce um and and now since then actually ben has sort of you know graduated to an assistant coaching role and a professional pacer so you know even you know most elite runners are very good at pacing but ben was recognized even among his peers as being exceptional and it's like any other skill, like you can improve it through intentional practice, but you can also be a natural. <laughs> and um, interestingly, Ben, part of the reason I chose him is he actually, he's a little bit of a late starter or a, a late specializer in running. So he, um, I think he did some cross country running in high school, but he didn't, he didn't start running track until he got to college. And mm -hmm. when he was still in his first year at uh, uni, he was given the, the responsibility to lead the crucial first lap in intervals on the track, even though, you know, he was one of the, one of the newest and youngest and least experienced members of the team, because he was just so darn good at pacing, then it becomes a question of, okay, wh why, you know, like, and if he's not the only one, like, what is it that makes, you know, the Ben Bruce's of the world uh, n naturals? And so they have kind of a head start with this skill as compared to the rest of us. And so that's really what that, that chapter is all about. But I thought, yeah, Ben was the perfect guy to to serve as the exemplar. How did he move your pacing ability along when you went to train with them then? I wouldn't say he did, you know, because, you know, I was, I had already been a runner for decades myself at this point, but, it, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. So this was my first time training at high altitude. Flagstaff is 7,000 feet. And also I was just in a unique place with my running. I was 46 years old. I was sort of like having a, a I don't know, like I, I struggled with injury throughout my my you know running career, and I had been healthy for a little bit of while, uh, for a little while. I had just done this thing where I traveled around the country running uh, a marathon every week in a different place for eight weeks. So I had this incredible base. So I was like I was older than I had ever been, but I obviously, um, but I was also I was in like a, a good spot with my running. And then then I'm in a brand new novel context. So I was a little bit at sixes and sevens. Like I, I didn't really. It was almost like I was a beginner again in some sense. And and Ben Rosario, the coach of the team, kind of struggled to get a read on me because I responded very well to the training and the atmosphere. And so I became this moving target. You know, Ben would try to tell me how fast to run different workouts. 
And I would just blow those times away. And he would say, you know, you're, you're undisciplined. And I'm like, coach, no, I obeyed the spirit of the workout. Like I wasn't, I wasn't running too hard. It was just, it was easy. So Ben, the other Ben, we have too many Bens here, but uh, Ben Bruce, he just spontaneously, he, you know, he, he's one of those guys who was sort of like, he's like a natural born leader slash coach. So just, he, he sort of volunteered and he was also injured uh, then he could run, but he couldn't do full training. So he just sort of, he, one day he just volunteered to pace me through a workout. He helped to kind of anchor me there. So I wouldn't say I was bad at pacing coming into it, but I was, I, like I said, for all these reasons, I didn't, you know, start over or just, you know, learn pacing for where I, where I was now as a runner. And he helped to just kind of anchor me. He, he would say, you know, what pace are you supposed to be running? And, and I would tell him, and then he would run exactly that pace. And also he would show me um, how he thought about pacing. So as we went along running together, mm -hmm. he, he ended up pacing me on three separate occasions, three separate workouts. And he would, he would tell me, he would give me little tips like, okay, you know, like when we turn around this corner, there's likely to be a headwind. And so, you know, X, Y, Z. So that, that was a, I took all that in as well. Cause you know, I, I would say I was good at pacing, but he was definitely better. And so I was, I was there to, to sponge it up. Cool. It's like what you're saying. You had a good raw base for it, but you were trainable and you you made the most of the opportunity and got that little bit better through learning. Yeah. You, you know, I should say just to tie a bow on this. Um, so, you know, I, I was it became sort of a running joke with the team that I, I was a terrible pacer because they didn't know me before. And I was Ben Rosario was getting a little bit uh, frustrated with me because I would never run the time he gave me. But when it came down, so you know, the capper for this experience was I ran the Chicago Marathon and I, you know, some strings were pulled and I was actually able to run as a pro mm. um, uh, with a pro bib. And and Ben Rosario, my coach, he told he told me what my goal time was and pacing strategy. And he said, I, you know, I, I think you can run. I think you can sustain 605 per mile. And he told me, like, do not run the first mile in 547. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> like this is showtime. I I think I know what you can do, and if you listen to me and do it, you'll have a good race. And so I ran the race, and my average pace for for the race as a whole was I think six oh five point oh five per mile. So I got it. I got it when it counted. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So yeah, the story had a happy ending, which I'm pleased. Yes. <laughs> Being a psychologist, I can't help but talk about principles because it's it's kind of in my DNA. And there's 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 three things which Matt talks about in in the book, which he keeps coming back to. And well, if you read it, should become ingrained as much as becoming a better pacer. And the three things are body awareness, which is if I've understood correctly, a feel for your performance limits, judgment, which is a continuous evaluation of your present effort and or fatigue in relation to your past experience in running and races. And then what he's termed toughness, which is mental bonding rather than a physical set one. And toughness, which is a mental boundary rather than a physical one. Yep. Um, and being able to, through self-regulation and determination, a sense that you're able to push your capability through your mental skills to take the body along with you. Was that a fair yep. assessment of those three key concepts that run through the book? Yes. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, I, I am not a psychologist. I share the interests of the trained professionals like yourself. And so I think, you know, I think another coach had written a book about pacing. They would have treated it as a skill and that's it. And mm -hmm. so it just it sort of would have stayed at kind of what I consider a surface level. Not that that level isn't important, it's extremely important, but for me, there are mental traits or qualities that underpin the skill. And so while you're working on the skill, you also wanna work on these underlying traits. Like Ben Bruce, why was he so gifted naturally for pacing? Because he had these traits. And so uh, that's part of my approach. Like, yes, we wanna work on the skill, qua skill, but we also, want to recognize like, you know, if, if you're able to improve your judgment, your decision making, because pacing really is, it's just a series of decisions you make, like speed up, slow down or hold steady. And the more times you make the right decision versus the wrong, the better you are at pacing. So when, if you improve your judgment, you become a better pacer. Toughness as well. Like, you know, toughness was my weakness as a young runner. Like I just, 
I, it was obvious to me that I could not suffer as well as some of my peers and I worked on it and I got better. And so that's a trainable skill. And you know, because pacing is the art of finding your limit and your limit is really perceptual in any type of endurance race. It, it doesn't mean the limit's not real. You know, mental limits are real, but they're mutable. You can, they're a little bit squishy as compared to hard physiological limits. So if you're able to just increase your, your tolerance for the suffering that is pretty much unavoidable when you're finding your limit in a race, that's also a way to improve uh, as pacing. And then Body awareness is, you know, perhaps the most fascinating and, and maybe least familiar one of all for, for runners. Um, it's just, you know, you're, it's just your ability to mindfully recognize what's going on in your body, like what you're feeling, particularly, you know, relevant things like perception of effort, fatigue, perception of speed, and then interpret what you're feeling. Not only is like, you know, if there's a rumbling in your stomach, you interpret that as hunger. So like they're two separate things the feeling and then what what you do with that feeling so improving your body awareness is i mean that's critical that that's when you go from like like hitting the wall in your in your first ever race as a runner to doing somewhat better in your second one that is largely a result of improved body awareness like you know what it means now when you feel a certain way as a race and you can make a, a course correction so yeah all three of those traits are are equally important and a lot of fun to work on as well i think yeah. And I mean, you were touching on the, the suffering part there. And I'm very much of the opinion it's pain's inevitable, suffering is optional, uh, that old cliche. And that effectively, if you're staying in the game of endurance running, you're learning, hopefully, if you want to progress by learning how to suffer better. Mm -hmm. And there's no magic recipe, but there are skills that you can train. And that's where Matt and I try and earn our money is through helping <laughs> you learn how to suffer better. And that's, well, that's where the book goes into uh, the detail in a really nice way and use, leans on theories that probably aren't ready for the podcast yet. We haven't got enough time, but if you read the book, it's in there and touches on some of the elements that are in Matt's book, uh, How Bad Do You Want It? Some of the elements that he, he goes on there about the ability to train your mind through mental fitness but coming back to what we're saying here about that body awareness and the actual judgment and toughness development and the the skills that we're talking about here were how can you become more body aware and there's two two things which i picked out which i really liked and one of them is the skill you can train in the moment while you're doing your actual exercise and training which is body scan when running and uh, he goes into detail about how you could do that. A lot of the runners I already work with, they tend to do something like this already, yep. but they yep. they might not have ever verbalized or stopped to think about it. And again, as yep. coaches and sports sites, we can help you kind of take that time to work through, okay, so every mile or 5K, what are you doing in terms of that body check to know that everything's on track and what you might need to alter or adjust, but also how to read your body and what's going on and not jump to, a negative conclusion which where yep. races haven't gone so well for a lot of people something starts to feel a bit bad and they can catastrophize and it goes down to a pity party they can't pull themselves mm -hmm. around from and then another thing that you're saying people could be doing to train their mental fitness outside of the actual event themselves and this comes to your point that's in run like a pro the thing that i took away from reading that book overall was i think you 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 were quite honest about saying you didn't know what to expect going to train with a group of professional runners who would if you've never done it <laughs> right um but the thing that came through was that you were surprised how chilled out they seemed to be in everything they were doing overall in and out of their mm -hmm. running you i think you expected a bunch of intense athletes yes. but actually they were quite laid back yep Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how the kind of approach and mindset of the athletes isn't kind of all about strictness and discipline but how they seem to lead a bit more of a relaxed way that we might as amateur athletes not necessarily know about yeah yeah great question i think you know i, I don't want to paint with too broad brush stroke but i mean i i have you know had opportunities to be around some of the best runners and other endurance athletes in the world and then you know i all the athletes I coach, most of the athletes I coach are, you know, amateurs like, like ourselves. And you do notice some characteristic differences. 
in 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 the two groups and and one thing you that i have seen in in the NAZ elite runners and others at that level is they have a really strong internal locus of control so they just feel like you know the, that they have the power to affect the outcomes they want to see they don't they're realistic they know they also know what they can't control but that's just it they have clarity about that it's like they don't have to pray for favorable weather to achieve their goals they they know that they can you know train and eat right and recover well and achieve their goals through those things just it's chopping wood for for them mm. and so there's just sort of a there's just sort of a, a sort of a piece that comes with that. It, it just, it allows you to actually be fairly relaxed and not sweat the small stuff. You know, you know, a, a, you know, a great example would just be some of the, some of the disastrous workouts I saw some of the pros have there, or even not necessarily disastrous ones, but you know, ones that would be like, you know, kind of a C minus if they're, they're going <laughs> to put a grade on it where they would just, you know, they quit early because it wasn't their day or, or they got a, uh, you know, like a, you know, alarming niggle popped up during the workout and they decided to bail. And for, for them, they, they were able to, to contextualize it and just kind of look past it and just see it for, they, they weren't necessarily happy that things had gone, well, they weren't happy that things had gone wrong, but they didn't catastrophize. They didn't make it more than it was. It, you know, they, they just kept the, the long view versus people without as strong an internal locus of control feel more dependent on things going their way. And when they don't, for whatever reason, it makes them reach for the, the panic switch. It's like, you know, for them, it's more like the, the pros, uh, one bad workout is just that, one bad workout. For a lot of too many <laughs> recreational runners, it's one bad workout is the training isn't working. I'm not as good at running as I thought I was. You know, it just becomes something more than that. And and so what's not, it's sort of a good news story. It's like, guess what? Like chilling out and not sweating the small stuff and being relaxed and and just having clarity about what you control and, and what you don't it feels better like you, you're actually less anxious and you perform better it's a twofer yeah and i think you know someone who is a solid amateur let's just call them that who was doing this <laughs> and who's listening into the show and going okay well that's great guys you know they're paid athletes. They don't have to work a nine to five. They're not parents who have like disruptive kids. They've not got an old parent who needs loads of support. They can afford to be more relaxed. But again, my experience working with athletes, yes, I help people with skills and strategies in their running or their discipline. But also I, I, I always talk about what their lifestyle's like around it. Cause if you're training like a pro, but your lifestyle's chaotic and you've got a set that, that, that internal locus of control, you don't feel you've got it. It's something that you can be doing outside of your discipline and work on that. And it's not necessarily just being, you know, a little bit woo woo and life coachy. It's, it's <laughs> genuinely trying to help you think about that part of your life because the 80-20 principle, which is Matt's company and training courses, is all about you doing a lot of quite easy uh, activity. Then you're doing a small amount of hard stuff and let the good work settle in. But if you're not able to relax and let the good hard efforts that you've done settle in, you won't get the actual performance gains. And in, in the book, bringing it back to skills that you can use however busy you are, you were saying that people can do things such as meditation practice and more some people I know particularly runners when we talk about meditation I do have one or two who are really good with it and quite a few who are saying oh, I've tried meditation it's just too much my brain's too busy and mm -hmm. I point them towards um, a concept and practice called yoga nidra and that's what you're saying people should do you don't put it as that in your book uh, you say people can do body scans and yep. effectively a body scan is where you lay down you close your eyes and you listen to a guided practice which talks through where you are in your body and it says okay take your focus to your right arm go down your arm go to your right finger da, 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 da. and yoga nidra is effectively that and you just lay mm -hmm. there and you're mentally 
relaxing you're mentally following what the guided meditation says and when i've given it to people because you've got an actual focus they can get their head around it so if you're yep. someone who is an athlete who likes the idea of being able to get the benefit of meditation but find it hard i think body scans are a great way that you can kind of go in that way is, is that a sim similar to your findings with your athletes yes yeah i actually um if i ever knew about yoga nidra i forgot when i wrote that section of the book so it would have been nice to say hey it might be familiar to you as this but yeah that, that's the idea so yeah i think you know what when i'm when i'm sort of you know selling runners on the project of becoming better at pacing one of the things i say is like you don't actually have to make extra time for it it's not like convincing a runner who doesn't strength train mm. to start strength <laughs> training like that you, you 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 do in fact have to find extra time for it almost all of pacing skill development can occur within the context of the running you're already doing. So you're just, you're just creating a, like a dual purpose. Like you're, mm. you're doing the workout you were going to do anyway. And you're also working on pacing and using one of the, the you know, the, the methods that I, I described in the book, the body scan would be one partial exception to that. You can do like, if you're just anti-meditation, you can start with the running body scans because again, you're running anyway. So you can sort of just see how that goes for you. And then if you like it, you might start to change your mind about meditating and then try, you know, body scan outside. Uh, and then, and even that you don't necessarily have to make extra time for it could be you know nobody nobody lies down in bed at night and falls asleep instantly so so use the time between when you put your head on the pillow and when you actually fall asleep to try a body scan so um so and no I, that's that, that's exactly my point sometimes i get athletes who've got hectic lives say to me i'm having problems sleeping i prescribe do it right. do a 10 minute one from youtube just put it in there, find a 10 minute one, see how you go, because it will help you relax and feel. It's the concept Andrew Huberman talks about non-sleep deep rest. So it's, it's yes. a form of relaxing in order yep. to be able to help you then switch off. And if you switch off, you're more likely to sleep. And if you sleep, all that hard work that you've done down the track or on your threshold run will sink in and you'll be a hopefully quicker runner if that's what's important to you. One of the elements you also talk about is something that Noel Brick and I talk about around the attentional focus part of training. And you have put a really handy little chart about the do's and don'ts of what that looks like, as in if you're running and you're feeling like you're suffering. We talked about how do you train to suffer better? There are some do's and there are some don'ts. Matt's gone into a lot of depth with them in the book that you can follow. But just for the podcast, can you sum up a few key principles for those as well? Yeah. So I, I should say that much of what I know about attentional focus in running, I learned from Noel and I guess <laughs> you as well. So if, it, if, if some of that material looks familiar, that that is why. But you know, attentional focus, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if, unless you've stopped to think about it or um, you've read one of Noel's studies, you don't realize just how many different things you can do with your attentional focus. You know, it can be external or internal. It can be focused on performance relevant cues or you know, other things going on that are not performance relevant. So performance relevant would be there's a, a runner in front of you that you can put a target on and try to catch. Performance irrelevant would be you see a squirrel on a branch on the side of the road and, and you, you check that out as you're running by. It, you can also attend like the objects of your attentional focus can can vary from affect, you know, uh, emotion to perception, you know, feeling that, you know, the, the, the impact of your foot against the ground. Uh, two thoughts, obviously, um, you can, you know, you can focus on, on, on the thoughts. So like there, there are all these different buckets that uh, your attentional focus could go in. And what the research <laughs> shows is that like some of those buckets are helpful and some are harmful to performance. And, but also uh, actually there's, it's not like you, there's one bucket that's the best and that's the only thing you ever think about. Also, it's a matter of like, roaming allow allowing your attentional focus to cycle among different helpful foci so it could be checking your pace every so often but not too often that's one and then you go from there to 
reminding yourself to relax. And then you go from there to using positive self-talk, you know, feel that the negative thoughts might be starting to, to creep in. So when you realize just like there's all these things you can do with your attentional focus and some of them are really helpful and, and some are not, that's really empowering actually. Um, and also understanding that it really is entire, almost entirely within your control. Like sometimes like, you know, if you, if you feel a, 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 a sudden twinge in a muscle, okay, you don't have control over that. Your attention is going to go to that pretty much reflexively, but everything that comes after that is within your control. So yeah, I didn't really give you a list of do's and don'ts, but. Uh... No, you, you've <laughs> done a really nice job of helping people see the spirit of how they should use the do's right. and don'ts in terms yep. of where it's helpful to put your mind and where it's unhelpful. And I think the thing that it comes back to for you and I with how we like to help people train this mental fitness across the length of your marathon or half marathon training, if you're doing a, a, a long race or even an ultra, the reason why this is good stuff to be doing is if you're going to train for one of those races, you're going to have to do 12 or so weeks. You're going to be doing a lot of time on your feet and you have a choice what you want to kind of play with and get better at. So you're going to be out there training and running for however many hours you have a choice whether you're just going to let your mind do what it does. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's where you want to go. But what me and Matt would definitely advocate is here are some particular skills you can play with. So yep. you could follow some of the do's and some of the don'ts and you might find they're actually one of the things in the don't column works for you. And that's absolutely right. fine. You're training your attention and you're using things like chunking, uh, positive self-talk. And I always say, look, don't just follow, and this is in your book as well, don't just follow what the top athlete says. Maybe it does work for you. Find what works for you. And right. if you've got 12 weeks, <laughs> you've got a lot of time mm -hmm. to play with that and find, find the right one. So we've talked about body awareness. We've talked about the cultural judgment. And then we come to the, the third, third leg of the stool, if you want to call it, which is your toughness, your grit. And this is something which I... I kind of have, I feel conflicted on Matt, if I'm honest, because um, I, I, I'm not completely sold on mental toughness as a psych concept. So I'm quite in the public eye about that. I, I like to try and train people's mental flexibility, but also knowing endurance running and particularly towards, let's just say on a marathon, the last six miles, there is a place for gritting it out for the, the tough stuff and being single-minded in um getting through it and training that so i'm i'm I, I i'm not against it i'm 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 forcing myself to be more open-minded but can you maybe just put a little bit of color on kind of the spirit again uh, of that aspect of the of the training that people can do yes yeah so i i yeah i i have I appreciate your uh, your your skepticism, or you know, just the fact that you're not entirely sold on the concept. In, in the book itself, I, I actually say that that like mm. we're we're not even sure if it's one thing or just a whole bunch of stuff. That, but I, I would say this: there's definitely a there there. So maybe to to some extent, we're talking about semantics, and to another another extent, we are actually mislabeling <laughs> toughness or, 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 or putting things together that don't necessarily belong together. But there's definitely, there's a, there's a there there, um, mm. you know, because um, I mean, quite honestly, this isn't science, but you know, my own experience was, uh, you know, I went from having um, just a, a, a debilitating aversion to um you know, the, the discomfort, the intense discomfort that uh, is basically unavoidable if you're going to find your limit in, in a race to actually craving it and mm -hmm. feeling like it was my happy place and actually feeling like when those moments and races came, I, I, I sort of built a home there. And so that's a pretty radical transformation and it, and, and the, the actual which is interesting, but you know, there were two benefits to that. One is it just, it, it made me a much happier runner. You know, I, I no longer was just tied up in knots of fear days before a race. Like I was 
excited, but I was really no longer afraid. And, and you know, fear is, is not pleasant. I mean, a certain amount of it is, is natural and normal and healthy, but beyond that, it's just, it kind of ruins things. You know what I mean? So I just became getting tougher, whatever it was, made me enjoy the sport more. And then also I performed better, you know, because I, I didn't shy away from the discomfort. I, I was able to, I mean, you still have your limit, right? But I was mm. able to really kind of lean into it and, and and find where that was and not put up any artificial limits. So so we can almost just, I guess, put aside the the academic part of it and actually just focused on what can you do? Like, you know, what are you know, what what are the things that you can do to sort of get comfortable being uncomfortable and are they effective and, and could you benefit from them? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I'm often a big one for mental priming. So again, Matt goes into a little bit of detail in the book here about mentally preparing for sessions that you know are gonna hurt. Maybe the long long runs that you might do where you're gonna throw in some pace work or maybe a track session that is gonna really test you. And mental priming is absolutely one of my key strengths that I want athletes to go for whatever your level if you're a back of the pack runner you can still do that work it's not just limited to people at the front and often when I've spoken to back of the pack runners if that's not too disparaging a term just describing people who are maybe starting their journey they'll often say oh well the guys at the front look so good and comfortable they don't hurt do they and (laughs) when you spend time in the sport long enough you know yeah no they're hurting really really hard as well (laughs) (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and just to sort of cap off here about the mental training that we're talking about one byproduct that my athletes that I've been working with this summer have said is that actually doing a structured course gave them different skills and repertoires like we're we've been describing for the past half an hour or so and that gave them the confidence to actually then go through the tough stuff more so um, there's a little byproduct that even if you don't like that suffering bit if you do some of the other things we've talked around the attentional focus that self-talk you might find that the harder stuff is a little bit easier it'll still be hard (laughs) yeah Um, but it'll be easier so i hope that in this discussion i've given people a flavor of this book and uh, hopefully helped people wherever you are in the running journey some insight into how Matt's wanting you to develop and grow as an athlete I want to cap off actually as well that he's releasing this book what is are you up to 30 now is that how many books you've put out somewhere around there (laughs) (laughs) but this is the first book you've done on 8020 publishing which you've set up and do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so my company, 8020 Endurance, um, you know, it started off just we sold online training plans. And at some point, my partner and co-founder in the business, David Warden, and I decided to pursue a strategy of diversification. So we just wanted to, there was just a demand like for for what we offered and people sort of wanted more. Mm. And so we decided to start offering different things and not to be all things to all people, but just to sort of create like, just a, like a robust 80-20 training experience for, for athletes. And so, you know, we created a, a podcast and we're, we're about to launch our own coaching certification. But, you know, because one of our co-founders, me, is, uh, you know, a, an author, we thought, hey, let's start our own publishing imprint. And so we can just have control of that process as well. So this is uh, eight on pace is that our first release, first of hopefully many, many more to come. And it's just fun. It's, uh, it's really, you know, I've been an author forever, but also being a publisher now too, is just a, you know, a cool uh, little pivot in, in my career. <laughs> we're, we're, we're excited and happy to support you. And any of my runners will know that I advocate a number of Matt's books to supplement the work that the people are doing themselves. And finally, there's some really exciting news Matt was sharing before we started recording. And that's that he's moving uh, over to <laughs> where he wrote the book, uh, Run Like a Pro, came into fruition in Flagstaff, Arizona. And maybe just for a minute, explain what you're going to be doing there to listeners. Yeah, so the, you know, the summer I spent, the 13 weeks I spent with NAZ Elite in, in 2017 were, I mean, it's it's not an exaggeration to say the best 
weeks of my entire life. It was just a, a it was it was a dreamlike experience. And so ever since then, I've thought about how can I make this available to other runners or something, a very close facsimile of it. So that's really what I'm moving to Flagstaff to, to do. My, I'm married, so my wife has a say in the matter, but uh, <laughs> she's on board with it too. Flagstaff's a beautiful place, even if you're, if you're not a runner. And so we're buying a home, a property, and sort of transforming it into a, an ultimate runner's retreat. And we'll hopefully open our doors next spring. And uh, you know, we can only accommodate a handful of runners at a time, but the idea is you can come out and stay for up to 12 weeks and take advantage of all the facilities that that we will have in the house, a full gym, a recovery lounge, a underwater treadmill. But also we will be um, partnering with NAZ Elite so that you can actually meet up and run with the pros and, and take advantage of their, you know, strength and conditioning coach, their sports psychologists, their dietitians, mm-hmm. just like I did. So, and we, we really want to make it as accessible as we can possibly can. This is not Matt's get rich quick scheme. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's really something I just want to do and damn it, I'm doing it. <laughs> and, and that is a great dream to have. It might be harder for British runners with the current um, pound to dollar ratio without getting involved in any of the current economic <laughs> and political upheavals here in this country. But maybe by the time Matt's opened up in spring, things might be a bit better on the pound and British athletes can go over as some of the elites do to flag stuff. I've sent athletes in the past over to do altitude training and yep, the air is thinner there. So if you, whatever your skill as a runner, if you've never done altitude, it takes a little bit of time to adjust. Uh, you, you won't be able to go and hit your pace that you normally do back home when you go there for a couple of weeks. But we really wish you well on that venture. And Matt, I'm going to thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been really exciting and interesting sharing the concepts you work with and what you've got in this book. People can get it from Amazon and all other good booksellers. But do you just want to tell people where they can get hold of you if they want to find out more of about you and your work? Sure thing. Uh, my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org and my business website is 8020endurance.com. There you go. And he's on all the socials. If you want to find him, he's quite easy to look up. And uh, again, thank you for your time today. And maybe we might see each other in Flagstaff next time. Yes. Love to. <laughs> okay. Cheers, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.